0: And now, here's Gene Shepard. here at this important avenue of self-expression, <laughs> this important radio station, they've given us all a little laxity and leeway, and I'm being allowed to use John Gambling's actual microphone. It's this teakwood-mounted microphone with the, uh, with the uh, ivory knob. It's very nice. Do I sound better, Tommy? Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> it's got knobs on it. Yeah, button up your lips. Built up one of my favorite handicap expressions well it's uh, Christmas Eve and one of the great things about Christmas Eve excuse me I, I just discovered something when I come coming here to do this little thing here this little show that these keys sound exactly like doesn't it sound authentic these are my keys listen you know I sound like one of those guys standing in front of Macy's with the Santa Claus suit you know Sounds like a doesn't it? Huh? Right, if you will, Tony, please. He should be, this is my favorite Bill Dock record of the year. Bring it up. Cheech, cheech. Jingle, bell, jingle bells, jingle, oh, to hey, jingle, bell, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one horse open shed. Hey, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one horse open oh, shed. Oh, oh, well, let me play a little of this aphrodisiac oh, music here. Thank you. Kinda of nice, isn't it? You reset that, Tony said. They're not listening anyway on this night. I hope they're not listening. Jeez, it would be real sad to see somebody on a, on a Christmas Eve sitting around listening to the radio. That that would be sad. That's that's one of the things I like about uh, about the uh, holidays in this racket is that there's every so often uh, you know holiday comes along and you know nobody's listening and you can do all this great stuff and say all these bad things. But uh, nevertheless, that is my favorite Bill Doc record of the year. I, in my life of the New York Jets. In case you're curious, Tony, did you notice that's what it says, the New York Jets singing Jingle Bells? And uh, it has one of the uh, wackiest, uninformed record jackets I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's the New York Jets singing Jingle Bells. Yes, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. Oh, what time it is to... Oh, do I know some lyrics to that one? Well, I, I'd love to sing them to you tonight, but I guess the kids would still be up. But it doesn't make any difference. They're not listening. They've got better fish to fry than to hear the radio at this hour. So I think I might as well, you know, tell you why I, I'm somewhat... The, you notice a little giddy here tonight. It's Christmas Eve. Every Christmas Eve that I'm not in the Army... I give thanks for the fact that I'm not in the Army. I mean, there are certain days when you look around and you say, Oh, my God, I'm not in the Army. Oh, man. Other times you don't even think about it, you know. But uh, for those of you who wonder why anybody who's ever spent any time in the service continually talks about the service, or he doesn't continue to do it, but he brings it out occasionally, uh, is because this is a soul-fearing experience. It's a basic experience. It's one you can't forget. And uh, anybody who's been in has a bond with anybody who's ever been in. And anybody who's in at this minute has a bond with all other ex-yardbirds going all the way back to uh, Oliver Cromwell's time and before. He feels a a bond with the PFCs who followed Hannibal's elephants over the Alps, carrying that great badge of the GI to shovel, right? Right? Ain't None of us can ever forget, and especially on Christmas Eve, because I remember, I remember one particular Christmas Eve, which uh, any time, you know, Christmas comes up, I always think of that particular Christmas Eve, and it was in the Army. You know, you never see uh, in the movies, you don't see much about real life in the Army, and at this time tonight, you know, Christmas Eve, walk around, and you know, it's kind of cold, it's winter time the whole bit here and you see the red lights and the green lights and the people the great crowds up and down on the escalators at Macy's the whole thing that's you know it's Christmas it's a thing and whether or not you believe in Christmas whether or not you're Christian or whatever you might be the the, the folk holiday that you celebrate is a moment and this is true of all true holidays it's a moment of curious communion between people the holiday is an important thing in fact, you'll find holidays in every tribe. A certain, there are holidays. And there is a parallel to Christmas in every conceivable tribe, including some of the most remote primitive tribes of the Pacific. There is a holiday. It's like Christmas. Now, it may not be about Christmas. It may not have the same mythology and so forth involved. But it's a holiday, see? So uh, I'm walking along the street this afternoon, as a matter of fact, you know it's cold it's last minute shopping all that jazz and I see this yard bird going along I see a GI it's clunking along and I think oh my oh I know man I know and I could tell he was not home <laughs> he was not there's a certain way that a guy in the army is when he's home on leave and then there's the aimless way that you see guys moving along and they ain't home. And he's just sort of aimlessly shuffling along with that sort of glazed eye that you get when you're uh, not part of the scene. You're just sort of observing the scene. And one Christmas Eve, but uh, <laughs> jingle bells, jingle bells, excuse me, that's a salute to the sales department. Oh, by the way, I got the most lovely note from the sales department telling me that the... Uh, uh, you know, it's been great. Uh, Christmas is wonderful, and uh, now at this time of the year, we're celebrating Christmas here at the station. All everything's been it's been a good year at the station. And then the next uh, paragraph, a little subtle warning: we're going to have to be a little more careful about them commercials in the next <laughs> in the next year. <laughs> and, uh, I, I like these. I like the commercial type of Christmas greeting. I uh, they're, they're so they're, they're, somehow there's a certain transparent uh, cupidity in it. That, uh, that I kind of enjoy I, 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 I like uh, honest cupidity maybe that's one of the reasons why old Ebenezer Stooge is such an important character in literature you remember him, Tony? remember him? bah well, uh, humbug he was, he was unabashed cupidity personified he was looking for the buck or the pound in his day the shilling uh, the, the tuppence and uh, he he just embodied it. And of course, ultimately he came to heal, uh, as all true practitioners of the art of cupidity eventually must. That is in folklore. In reality, uh, I've seen the practitioners of that well-known art of cupidity. That's a great word. Is a it? cupidity. It's associated, you know, with Cupid. Think about it for a minute. Cupidity is associated with Cupid. Well, what does Cupid stand for? Love. Well, Cupidity is uh, excessive love. Of D E A U X, bucks, barucks, dole. <laughs> and uh, so, nevertheless, uh, I've noticed in my own experience that those who practice the art of Cupidity excessively always wind up on the fantail of their own fifty-foot Hatteras yacht off the uh, coast of one of the better Bahamian islands. And the rest of us uh, write folk stories about how you always lose by your cupidity. But that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I, I uh, I'm so you know so feeling so great uh, just because I'm not. Well, I'm I'm where I want to be on Christmas. Really, that's an important thing, you know, just to be where you want to be. I want to be here. i mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you a terrible thing. And uh, for those of you who are out there in the boondocks, you're going to get bugged when you hear this. I like New York. <laughs> I repeat, in fact, I more than like New York. I dig New York, which is a terrible, especially at this time. year. I don't know, there's something about it. Especially this time of the year. There's just so much going on all the time. And I always feel sorry for the poor outlander who arrives in New York and looks at it with the glazed eyes of confusion, who then writes home about how much better it is in Indianapolis. in a pig's you-know-what. Having spent one Christmas in Indianapolis, I can disagree with that loudly. However, one Christmas, and I want to tell you a story tonight, I'll tell you a Christmas story tonight, about one Christmas that forever has made me thankful that uh, I'm just not in the Army. (laughs) That's all. There's a lot of things. About being in the army or in the navy or the marines, any one of the armed services. When you look back on it, there's a curious warmth that you feel about a lot of things. Wouldn't you agree with that, Tony? Because of the people you knew and all the things that happened and the guys you met. You never hear that side of it, of course, uh, in, in you know protests and so But there, this is true. It's a, it's a curious kind of a club, and uh, you in a way you're really pulled together, united each yard bird with the next, by a curious kind of common enemy. Whatever the common enemy is, it's, it's, ne- it's never the enemy that is being fought in the war. <laughs> it's never. The enemy really is just being there, in a real way. Just being there. And then it's usually all the things above it. It's the great drifting tide, the the snow... Uh, fall, the fall, the, the drift of orders that come down, and the feeling of being a, a chip on a vast sea with unknown currents, you can't control it. And the, this Christmas, this particular Christmas, they had, a, they had a rule. I was stationed in this camp way out somewhere in the boondocks. In fact, it was in the Ozarks. Now, the Ozarks are very colorful in certain areas, but then there's other areas of the Ozarks that are kind of lost, misbegotten, and remote. Certain parts of the Ozarks you might as well be on Mars, as far as your contact with human beings are concerned. And this vast camp that I was stationed in at that time was a good six, seven hundred miles from any major city. And they had a rule and that came down, there was a, there was a note on the, on the bulletin board, you know, the, the bulletin board outside of the orderly room in any company is, uh, is a kind of rallying place for the universal gripe. This is where the bad news always emerges, like, a, like an iceberg come, coming out of the Bering Sea. It's never really abrupt, never really says, uh, as of this date, everybody's in trouble. Uh, <laughs> you know, that would be kind of nice. But uh, a couple of days before Christmas, maybe a week before Christmas, they uh, circulated this order, this fool's cap, and it was up on a bulletin board, and everybody's standing around looking at it. It says, as of this date, uh, by ex-army headquarters, order of command, order of et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of numbers and stuff, uh, one-third of all personnel in every company, in every operating company, will be confined to base on Christmas holiday. You ever see that order? Well, now, how many of you know that that an actually, you know, it's a policy. It has to be, you know. They can't let everybody do the way it goes. See? So there was, a, you know, there was an, immediately there was this fantastic uh, sense of insecurity. Everybody, Who's going to go? <laughs> Who ain't going to go? That's more important. Out of, out of every bunch of guys standing in front of the orderly room, at least one out of three was going nowhere. Period. Well, every last guy in the company had put in for a leave over Christmas, which is standard. Everybody says I want to get home or I want to go somewhere, so everybody put in for leave. Well, apparently they drew him by hat or something. I don't know how they ever did it, but the day arrived before Christmas. It was the day, It was like it was uh, the day before. It was like December 23rd, in other words, the day before Christmas Eve, not the day of Christmas Eve. All the whistles blew. It's 12 noon, just before child. And all of us were brought out into the company street, and it was cold. I want to tell you, it was cold. That wind was howling down out of those mountains till, you know, hell wouldn't have it. Fantastic. And it was a driving hard, sleeting snow. And that afternoon, we were to go out to the pole line construction what they call the practice yard, which really was about 5,000 flat acres of mud. And on this mud, there was a great bristling forest of stripped telephone poles. That is one of the most desolate sights in the world. If you've ever seen it, you'll never forget it. They, these telephone poles were of different sizes, ranging all the way up to 60-footers, from, from little 15-footers all the way up to 60-footers. And they kind of march to the horizon like a denuded forest that had been hit by some terrible blight. Just telephone poles, wooden poles sticking up in long lines. And this is where the signal corps men practiced putting up equipment on tele. You see the wooden telephone poles, so somebody's got to climb to the top of them. And that was what Company K was involved in. And oh, is that a rough job? And so. At 12 noon, we were called out. We stood there in our helmet liners, GI raincoats, gas masks, leggings, dog tags, all of it, dressed in Class D fatigues, which in 35 seconds in the wind from the mountains off the Ozarks are soaked through, soaked through. Well, we're standing out there waiting. And Kowalski's got that clipboard. And on that clipboard are the names of the guys that are going home. And he starts reading them out. I just stood there. And he's reading them names off. There's about 260 guys in this company. One after the other, he's reading them out. And every time he'd read a name, you'd hear some guy holler, "Whoopie!" whoopee, you know. And then he'd give a glare, look around, at ease. He's reading the names. And finally he put the clipboard down, and he said, "That's all." Help me? I can shut. Dismissed." And we started to wander on down towards the child mess, the mess hall. I was not on the list. Gasser was not on the list. Edwards was on the list. And there were a lot of us that just weren't going to make it. And you could see the difference. This one crowd just wildly ran like mad for the barracks because they wanted to start packing their stuff, you know, to get out of camp to, to the next day. They were all leaving at 0800. They, so they ran like mad back. They weren't even going to eat because they didn't have time, man. They were going to pack all the stuff and everything. They were all excited because we, 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 we had till something like 1.30 for chow. We did Something like that, 12.30, 1.30. And so the rest of us drifted on down, down to the mess hall. We ain't going nowhere. We sat down, we're eating our SOS, knocking down our GI bread and drinking a coffee. And Gasser's sitting next to me says, All right. You might know it. I said, Yeah, oh, well. Look at it this way, Gasser. You know, what would you you know, you have to spend all the money on them gifts and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That would have been tough, wouldn't it? Yeah. You would know, have had to sit down and eat this Christmas dinner and all that stuff. Probably make you sick. I mean, after all, you know, we're so used to salt pork. I mean, you know, turkey may make you sick or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's true. Never thought of it that way. G.I. <laughs> humor. So 20 minutes later, we are marching out to the pole line practice construction yard. And we're completely in our equipment, totally in, in the pole line construction equipment. Now, you've probably seen linemen from time to time. Every time I see a lineman today, I feel a sense of simpatico. A lineman equipment usually consists of a big safety belt. And, of course, another belt that goes right around your waist is always hung very low, down around your hips. And on this belt, uh, with clips, brass clips, is your equipment. Which consists of a big leather case with all your wire cutters, your splicing equipment, your pliers. You always have a flashlight. You always have a continuity tester. All this stuff is on this big thing on your hip. On the other side of your hip, you, you usually have your uh, your big uh, medical case. <laughs> in case you cut yourself open up there on the top, you can whip out a self-adhesive or something. You know, this is all the and and uh, all the way around. You see, we've got all this stuff hanging, flashlights and junk. And plus your sidearm. You always have to go up with a sidearm. And this is all strapped on the outside of our raincoat, which makes us, each one, feel like we weigh 7,000 pounds. In addition, of course, to gas masks and all the rest of the jazz. And tin, tin helmets and all the rest of it. And so we're marching on out with the climbers. Now, I don't know whether you've ever climbed with climbers. That's an experience, too. And, uh, you know, you, you get so you kind of like it after a while. You know? <laughs> Once you start get over your initial fear... Our climbers consist of two spurs that are on the inside of your foot, uh, roughly about your instep, a little bit behind your instep, and they go up, they, they go all the way up to your knee, actually, it's a, it's a rod, a steel rod, flat uh, flat steel plate goes up the inside of your knee, and it straps under your knee, and it straps around your ankle, Well, we had our climbers attached to our belt, we're going out into this wind, and the wind is howling, And it's just a driving sleety rain. Now we're out at the practice yard. And five minutes later, I'm up at the top of a 60-foot pole, slowly edging my way up. And gas is off to my left. And off to my right is Edwards. He's on a pole. We're all on 60-foot poles. And I could see him off, one on the left, one on the right. And when you're at the top of a 60-foot pole, the wind causes that pole to move i would say two three feet sometimes it just moves back it can cut your off sixty feet doesn't sound like much to you but i'll give you a better perspective on it sixty feet is roughly five stories so if you can imagine yourself hanging on nothing uh, five stories above the ground and below you is nothing but red clay and the wind blowing the rain pouring down over the top of your steel helmet and I had a crossbar that was what I was supposed to be doing I was bolting a crossbar on the top of this thing which I had dragged up by a rope you see the rope and you pull the crossbar up there and finally I get this thing up and I had a big bolt that I was going to shove through this thing and two cleats that went on either side of it to keep it from spinning and the wind is blowing back and forth just I could feel this thing moving under my hands, just back and forth. And on the outsides of it were these two big green insulators just moving back and forth. And I get this thing through, and I could see Gasser over there. He's wrestling with his. (laughs) And the wind is howling. And Gasser, who was taller than I was, he got his on first. Being tall helps in a scene like that. Because your arms can, you know, stretch way out. But he got this thing on, and he's hanging on there watching me. And I could see his face under his helmet this wind and the sleet is coming down and I, I'm, I'm putting this thing on and all of us, for some reason or other I don't know why I did it it's, a, it's, it's one of the reasons why I've never gotten to be Johnny Carson I've got a bad mind right in the middle of all that the wind is howling and the rain is coming down and I can see the little icicles forming on the edge of my helmet they used to form in little droplets like but I'm, I'm wrestling with this, this tremendous crossbar which is about 10 or 12 feet across it's a big crossbar. All of a sudden, for for no reason at all, I started to sing jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way, jingo-ta-da-da-da-da-da-one horse opens, And Giff is looking over at me. And see, I face you know, He's got this, he's got this strange blank face. And on the other side of me, of course, is Edwards, who is going home for Christmas. And Edwards is hanging out of his crossbar, and all three of us then started to sing this thing. Say, Jingle bells, jingle bells. And you could hear a couple of other ragged voices coming from various poles around. And down on the ground, I could see this red-headed corporal, this guy who was in charge of the pole line construction practice yard. Boy, what a mean character he was. In fact, I'll never forget one thing about him one day, which I will not go into at this time, but he did a thing one day when I was out there. I was there the day it happened, which later showed up in a short story in The New Yorker. I didn't write it. I just read this short story, and it had to be about this guy. Because I was there, I saw it happen. So he's marching around back down there looking real, real G.I., a total G.I. character, and he was from someplace like Anniston, Alabama. And he looks up and he says, Eddie, up there. You guys are working on them poles. I don't want to hear no singing up there. I guess it said something, just a single word. Well, actually, it was a single phrase, a classic G.I. phrase. And I want to tell you it was long before Dylan's blowing in the wind. And that phrase blew in the wind. And that guy looks up and says, What do you say man? there? I hear you say something up there. Nothing. Because at different altitudes, you hear different things, and everybody on top of the poles heard it, and all the guys on the bottom didn't. <laughs> we hung up there at the top of those things until about two thirty till we finally got the wires on our practice crossbars on and our practice insulators, and I slowly crawl down. And getting down, in case you're curious, is more dangerous than going up. Uh, For anyone who's done any extensive high-level climbing, these are high. By the way, this is called high-wire climbing. Whenever you go above 35 feet, you're climbing high. And when you're climbing high, you've got to be careful of a lot of things. Wind twist, that's another thing, you know. The the pole moves in a curious cork stroop fashion and that's a dangerous way to move because it can cut your that's called cutting out Uh, when when your is cut out that's called cutting out and that belt is not really a safety belt that belt is really a thing you lean back on because if you start to fall off one of those poles that that belt does not help you in fact it can kill you uh... if you start to fall what happens with that belt that belt keeps you close to the pole and you slide down. What you, what you in effect do is you just sort of fly down on the outside of that pole, and you're killed by gigantic splinters. Uh, some guys will pick up a splinter that's two three feet long and just go right through them like a knife. So what you do when you're falling, when you feel that you're going to go, and you, there's no way when you're going to go, you just hit that safety belt. There's a catch on it, and it releases you. You push yourself away from the pole, and you literally go into a free fall. Well, so uh, this is all technical things, which are <laughs> rather boring out of Christmas Eve. So we climbed down this pole. I remember standing on the ground below looking up and the crossbars moving. Now, of course, what you've got to do now is go back up and take it off. That's the next thing. And so all afternoon we climbed up and down that pole in that icy wind. And that night, it's about 6 o'clock, we've marched back to camp, which is a good eight miles. You, you polish off a good afternoon's work on the poles with an eight-mile hike usually a double time to get back in time for chow. So we clumped back into the company area. And at that point, one-third of the company's morale was roughly running along with the snails. The other two-thirds of the company's morale was incredible. I mean, they were on top of it. They were singing and hollering, and the rest of us were just sort of dragging along. Curious how you begin to have the feeling of of the haves and the have-nots. (laughs) <laughs> Just by a simple order that comes down out of out of some mysterious headquarters someplace. Have you have you ever had the sensation that orders have been cut for your life somewhere someplace? Somebody has put something on your your eternal invisible service record, your life service record, that you are never going to be allowed to to rise above corporal. That the, <laughs> that's the way it goes, and all the others have been given commissions. And so, nevertheless, I remember coming back into the company area, and it's it's cold and windy, and we lined up just before supper, before chow. We dumped our equipment out into the barracks, our climbers and all that stuff, and now we're standing out there in our raincoats. We haven't even had time to wash up. And the old Kowalski's out there again with his clipboard. He saw it, men. He saw you guys been given Christmas leave. We just got notification from battalion headquarters that anybody who's been given leave is now free to leave the company area immediately following Chow, and you guys can clear out right after Chow. well of course they were expecting the next day and of course immediately a gigantic cheer went up which made it even worse than the rest of us we figured if we could keep those guys in misery at least overnight it'd be worth something you know but there's a fantastic cheer and so, okay, <laughs> that's the way it goes. And immediately, these guys all go running back. to. They're not even going to eat. You know, they go running back to the barracks like mad. They're getting their bags and all that stuff. And I go clumping off the chow, sit down. Me, Gasser, Zinsmeister, half the other, the Goldberg, bunch of the guys sitting around, eating listlessly. And that night, we had fried liver, which is always fun in the Army. We had fried liver and, uh, <laughs> yeah, fried liver and cabbage salad. They have, always had a called cabbage salad and pickled beets. The Army has a thing on pickled beets. So we're sitting there eating cabbage and pickled beets and fried liver. We had this purple Kool-Aid they always gave us, too. It was called juice. So I'm drinking that stuff and talking. And outside you could hear this the muffled merriment of the rest of the company running back and forth, howling you know, stuff like, Hey, listen, I'll meet you down by the bus station, yeah. Hurry up, get the bag for crying out loud. I can't wait all day for you. you know? That kind of stuff. You know, the imminent departure of your fellows. And so that night, they were gone. The barracks was almost empty. I'm sitting on my bunk, and somebody, one of my aunts, had sent me a package of Christmas cookies, which you were always getting in the army. And these Christmas cookies had become petrified en route. Not only petrified, but pulverized en route. And so I remember having this big box of cookies that was totally reduced to some kind of like, well, it actually was more like a uh, like a ground-up oatmeal or something. They were all crunched together. See, there were little, you know, these little red and green balls that they decorate Christmas cookies with, and they were. It was all mixed up in this this kind of furry fuzzy looking uh, uh kind of pulverized concrete, and I sat on the edge of my bunk, me and gasser, and we're eating cookies using our canteen cup spoon, you know the spoon you get with the end of this is our our utensil, as they call it, our spoon utensil It's typical army nomenclature, and we're eating cookies with the spoon, and uh gasser has dug out <laughs> out of his out of his foot locker he's dug out a couple of cans of G.I. beer that he got someplace. I don't know whether you've ever had G.I. beer that's lukewarm with pulverized Christmas cookies. A couple of other guys came in sat down. One guy's got a candy bar. We cut that up, eaten that. And the reason we didn't go down to get more candy bars was there had been no candy bars at our PX since roughly the middle of November. All they had were pillows that said Mother on them, which doesn't help much on Christmas Eve. And so the next morning, we fall out. One third of the company. And this is the day of Christmas. All the rest are gone. Not one guy left in the camp. The place is deserted. Kowalski's still there on top of it. He walks around. Sorry, you guys. Since it's Christmas, You could see he hated doing it. (laughs) Since it's Christmas, tell you what, let's do. Let's knock off everything. You guys want to go back to the sack? Go ahead. If you want to come out to chow and have breakfast, it's okay with me. We're going to knock off through Christmas Day. Just don't do nothing. Is that okay with you guys? We just stood there in the rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How? Who's going to say no, you know? Who's going to say no? I want to go back out of the pole line construction. I want to practice splices over Christmas. This is what I want to do. And he says, you guys could fall out. He just don't make too much noise. The, the exec's sleeping. So we fell out, drifted back to the barracks. Then I went down to the chow hall. And nobody's in the chow. That's the great thing about when nobody's in the mess hall. Nobody at all in the mess hall. Just a couple of cooks back there and two or three mad looking KPs. And they're cooking up anything you want. That's one of the great things about being around when there's you know, there's a holiday and you're stuck. And I walk in and usually the stuff is all made there, you know, you take the French toast or like it, that's it. Cooked in kerosene, you know, that's the end of it. And so <laughs> the, the mess sergeant says, how do you want your eggs? Do well, You want eggs? You want pancakes? How about bacon? Eh? How'd you, how would you like a little fried ham? This is the army celebrating itself, see. So I get myself about seven fried eggs and a big slab of bacon, a gallon of coffee, which I carry back in a big jug, and I sat down there and I'm eating my coffee drinking the stuff you eat army coffee generally by the way it's good incidentally. I like army coffee do you agree Tony you bet it is so I'm drinking a coffee and eating the eggs fresh eggs sitting around here when it hit in comes Gasser he says you seen you seen the bulletin board Shep I says what he says guess who's picking up guard duty tonight at 8 it's guard duty you bet guard duty I went back and I laid on my bunk and at 10 minutes to 8 I got up, slowly got dressed put on my raincoat put on my gas mask, picked up my M1 put on my cartridge belt put on my leggings put on everything that I had to put on including my tin hat and I dragged myself down to the orderly room and all the rest of that night I stood guard down at the end of the rifle range with the rain coming down and the wind howling around the shacks moving back and forth back and forth my mind a total blank once in a great while I would be reminded that it's Christmas. Off in the distance, I'd see some G.I. walking along. I'd say, it's Christmas. Why am I... And the wind would blow. And, and and every half hour, a jeep would come around the corner. The rain slanting through the through the headlights. And the corporal of the guard would be sitting in the front seat. Once in a while with the officer of the guard. And I remember the last the last go-round. My last trick was at 6 o'clock in the morning, two-hour trek. And the guy comes around, and he drove off in the mud. And as he drove off in the mud, he says, look, he says, take it easy, soldier. Oh, by the way, Merry Christmas. I said, Merry Christmas, sir. And I could see the glint of his wet First Lieutenant's bars on his wet raincoat, and I had the vague feeling he didn't like it any more than I did. Somewhere, someplace He too is probably saying It's Christmas Eve Thank God I ate in the army